Hi, this is Dave Brown from Picture House, and you're listening to Concerts That Made Us. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. Cheering crowd sound, it's concerts, concerts that made us, concerts that made us.com. On this episode, I'm chatting with Dave Brown from Pitcher House. When I was growing up in Ireland, Pitcher House were one of the most prominent bands on the scene. Their song Sunburst was the most played song on Irish radio in 1998, and They toured like it was nobody's business. They've played with the likes of Bon Jovi, The Coors, Meatloaf and Alice Cooper to name a few. So you know there's going to be some great stories in this episode. They're also playing a gig in Liberty Hall Theatre in Dublin on the 22nd of September. So if you're in the area, make sure you get tickets and go out and support the guys. It's going to be a great show. So without further ado, let's get on with the show.
Dave Brown, you're very welcome to Concerts That Made Us. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks a million. I'm delighted. I'm absolutely delighted now. I remember growing up in the 90s, not to make you feel old or anything now, but I remember growing up in the 90s, you couldn't listen to the radio without hearing you guys. And you were hugely successful. I mean, you toured with Bon Jovi, Meatloaf, The Coors. You even count Elton John as a fan. He bought a box of your CDs to give out to friends and family. I mean, you seem to have done it all. Yeah, I mean, look, we had a we we had a great time. I mean, it's it's like a I, you know I do listen to a lot of podcasts now, and and one thing that seems to be quite uh, uh, across the board is that people don't really realise at the time that things are happening. You know, so we were just working. Now, don't get me wrong, we were having a great time. We were enjoying ourselves and playing and writing, and but you know when you're in the thick of all that work and 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 you're just going from one tour to another, it's you know. Put it this way, it happened again now. I think we'd all be looking around a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say so. I'd say yeah. so. So one thing I love to do is I love to start at the very beginning and see how your story started and how you got to where you are today. So if you can now, can you remember your very first musical memory? Yeah, I can indeed. Yeah. Well, I mean, apart from playing uh, at home to myself and writing all the time and, you know, very, very basic stuff now. When I was a kid, but my first gig, I think, was when I was fifteen, in um, in the local uh, school hall, as it were, in a community centre, and there was a kind of a battle, not a battle of the bands, but a you know uh, a summer festival kind of thing, you know, just for the locals and all. And that was the first time I stood up and played one of my own songs. Yeah. Nerve wracking. I was just going to say it must have been pretty nerve wracking being the first. Yeah, yeah, but you know, you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere, you know, and uh, so you know, um, that's the first memory, anyway. Definitely, I, I remember it well. I remember it like it's yesterday. And when it comes to concerts, would you say going to see Meatloaf with your mother was kind of your musical awakening? Well, you know, it was it was very a sentient, interesting moment because I said to my mum, "I'm going to be up there with him someday." It wasn't just I'll be up there because I kind of knew that anyway. That's where I was going, but uh, with him. I'm actually going to play with Meatloaf someday and for that to actually happen uh, and to end up sitting on the stage with him singing one of his songs, you know, I mean, this, I think you've, you've more chances to win the lotto than that actually happening, you know, yeah, yeah, you know it's very, for such an obscure thing to actually yeah. happen. So yeah. Yeah. Or out of an upcoming documentary, you never know. Well, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, in your house growing up then, was it a very musical house? Was uh, music always being played? Yeah. Yeah, all the time. I remember one of my earliest memories of, of how music affected me emotionally was um, Honey Come Back by Glenn Campbell. And um, we had Glenn Campbell's greatest hits in the house, which, you know, years later when you turn around, like Jimmy Webb wrote all those songs and the whole story about him and Glenn, how they got together. It's fat. You know, I was just so happy that that was the music in which my household was made up of. But uh, Honey Come Back, yeah, where he just, you know, it's a country western song and it's playing away and then he starts talking in the verse, I know you used to love me, honey, and all this. And I started bawling because I just felt my heart broke for the guys. It's like, oh, this is unbelievable, you know. I remember my mother coming into the room saying, you know, are you, are you all right, son? You know, as a concerned parent would be, why, why are you crying? Is everything all right? And I was just like, uh, it was only years later I realized the song had just touched me. That's what happened. I just got, you know the emotion was from the song and how my heart went out to the to the character in the song you know so 
it's the the power of music, I suppose. Oh, absolutely, it is. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. So I've always had an affiliation with music that way, and in the house there was always great, you know, Elvis and Neil Diamond, and it's all good music. You know, it was all really good music. But I, I pre—I mean, I the Wombles. I had the Wombles album. You know, we wish you a wombling Merry Christmas and all this. And then you kind of figure eight years later that Mike Bat wrote all of those songs, and the recording process was like the Beatles loved them. Everybody loved them, Mike Bat, because the songs were so clever, mm. you know, and well written. And how they were recorded? They were recorded by real bat. Like it was like I know they were Wombles in suits, but Mike Bat, the guy who wrote and produced all that stuff, was a bona, you know, bona fide genius. The stuff was amazing. So it's only years later you look back and kind of think you know and then when you and kind of think god they were it was good music to have around certainly yeah yeah set up a, a brilliant foundation for you anyway <laughs> yeah yeah so and that's where the pop element of it came from brian you know what i mean do we want to have a song that you know has to deliver in three minutes and you know do, do what it says on the tin so we were never afraid of that as, as you know and some would say that to our detriment, you know, oh, that's why you, you don't get taken seriously. I mean, the famous one of the famous reviews from Hot Press, where he came to the gig in in, in the Olympian and called our fans overzealous. Had to go with the fans because they were having too much fun. You know, it's kind of oh man. So anyway, we never really cared about that. We just wanted to be in the radio, and hence your first question. There, that's why we were on the radio all the time. <laughs> yeah. That's all we were interested in doing. Yeah, yeah. And just before Picture House, you had a band called Hidden Faces. What was your experience with that? Again, again, looking back on it, it was an amazing time. It wasn't at the time, you know, because we were kids and you all have your issues and you're in your teens and there's all this kind of crap going on, you know, there's there's all that in bands. But, you know, listening back to the music now, and the things we achieved, you know, we had cassettes with 10 songs on them, five on each side. And, you know, we made our own cassettes and wrote our own music. And it was full of passion and angst and, you know, yeah. all of that, <laughs> which uh, so I'm very, very proud of it now when I look back at it. Um, but I, as again, at the time, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I was more concerned with whose girlfriend was who at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. And how did that turn into Picture House then? They threw me out of my own band. Really? Yeah, they fired the lead singer, which is always a good move in the <laughs> music business. So I just went, okay, fair enough. And I set up Picture House the next week and off we went. Different band. Yeah, I think you know? it was sort of a I'll show these guys. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for the energy, guys. I needed that, you know. <laughs> um, Asher looked at sure Johnny Boyle was in the band in Hidden Faces. You know, it's all just the same. As I said, a lot of a lot of juvenile kiddie stuff going on, you know. Um, but that's what happened. So I moved on to Picture House, and it was a lovely man, Rod, Roddy Hickson, and um, Lord rest him. He had the the demo that I'd made, and he sent it into somebody to to review it or whatever it was. But he said, and "I put that in Picture House on it." And I said, "Oh, really? Why is that?" Well, you know, when I listen to your music, I see pictures. You know, it's very image driven, and then house is very inward at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like okay Roddy thanks man I'll take that that'll do so that's the truth about where that came from yeah uh-huh. it's a, that's not one I've heard before now it's a, it's yeah. actually a, a good way of coming up with the name <laughs> yeah well that's what happened you know yeah yeah and uh, you, like you know you tend to think there's a huge big game plan grand plan with bands where a lot of it's serendipitous and lucky yeah. and you know just things that happen yeah good and bad yeah yeah now 
in the early days, you guys had an unbelievable drive to succeed and you toured and gigged like hell around Ireland. What was the scene like in those days coming up? You know, and I know it sounds like a broken record here, Brian, but, you know, you're looking back on it and you're thinking now, God, it was actually really quite good. You know, you could, Heineken roller coaster tours were packed and, you know, um, really successful things that went on that I don't really see now. Mm. Um, I think the scene was more geared towards bands coming through and, um, you know, the live scene. Now, having said that, I'm not in that world at the moment, so I don't know. Maybe maybe there are lots of up-and-coming bands touring all over the place and still packing venues up and down the country. I don't know. But um, at the time, the scene was, was fairly vibrant. Yeah, it was fairly vibrant. Now, you never made any money, as usual, but it was, um, it was vibrant, anyhow. I think nowadays, I seem to notice anyway, is... I don't know what it was like back then, but now there seems to be like a massive divide. You know, you're either the lower bands that are going around playing gigs or you're the bigger bands that are playing festivals and everything. And it just seems like it's impossible to to merge or make the jump, you know? Yeah, that's that's a huge problem. That's a huge problem. I'm, I'm working with a new organization at the moment that we've set up, Kjol Aaron, which is Music Ireland, which we've set up to kind of deal with all of that. You know, as an indigenous business in Ireland, we don't really... We're not like the fish board or the film board or tourism Ireland where we kind of say, well, we have music and we're world beaters at it and we could be making a lot of money for our exchequer exporting this product if we manufacture it properly. And so in that lies that problem, uh, that same thing, that middle tier. You know, and I'm not sure what, you know, the appetite is amongst that age group of going out to see up and coming bands. I'm not sure whether that's a thing anymore. You know, it possibly yeah. isn't. You know, if you're not on TikTok, you don't have a huge presence. Um, maybe, maybe you can't connect with your audience in that in that you know organic way that we used. To. Again, I could stand to be corrected on that. I'm not sure, but uh, maybe that's part of the problem too. But I don't know when the last time I saw a band that kind of wrote a song, got the late late show, got on the radio, you know, did their own thing, and you know, I can't see, can't remember the last time that's happened an organically grown band here in Ireland? No, actually, no. I think uh, I think it's kind of a thing of record labels nowadays take a step back and say, how are they doing on TikTok? How are they doing yeah. on Instagram? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come to see us when, when you're already famous. Yeah. yeah. And that's why, again, I think there should be an apparatus in Ireland that can facilitate artists like that. I mean, I know it's not like going and pressing CDs and putting them in the record shops and any of that doesn't work. But, you know, you could have could be an appetite in Ireland for a lot of people that kind of think, you know, well, I'll go on to Kill Aaron's website this week and see what's up and coming and I'll buy that track for 99 cents because it doesn't bother me anyway and the artist gets the 99 cents. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. Where, you know, anyway, Brian, it's in, it's a whole other conversation all of that to try and get into it. But I mean, at the time, you know, the scene was very vibrant. We played in the Bag Inn and the New Inn and, you know, the white horse down on the on, on, on the keys and you know you could play in Ireland you could be playing every night of the week if you wanted to I, I know what you mean and as opposed to doing a pub gig recovers mm. or nothing these were gigs with the original artists writing their own stuff yeah yeah and there was a lot of it around everyone I knew was in a band you know <laughs> I suppose and, when you're when you're in the scene you, it would yeah, be like yeah, well, that that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's like the butcher guy everybody I know is a butcher <laughs> Yeah, you may yeah. find you're kind of in that scene. Maybe that's what that is. Yeah. <laughs> and one of your uh, one of your first major major 
tours around Ireland, I suppose, was with the Saw Doctors. How did that come about? Well, well, it actually wasn't, Brian. Before that, we did Big Country. Right, right. And we met lifelong friends on that tour. Paddy McPolin ended up being our tour manager. We met him on that tour. and played at Theatre Royal. Um, what was that? Famous Sir Henry's in Cork, you know. And we were with Big Country, and that was an amazing time. Absolutely mm. amazing, you know, because we were all in our just our high ace driving around after the boys, you know. <laughs> Yay. And then yeah, then the Saw Doctors um we went across England with them. You know, looking back, we did a great tour with them. And we made a lot of fans. Made a lot of fans and um, you know, learned a lot about touring uh, on that level. Um and basically we didn't come back for three years. <laughs> That's Jeez. what happened. Pretty much you know, I know it was time off and weeks here and our yard month there, but we pretty much toured for three years after that. Jesus. Which I'm not sure wasn't a mistake in hindsight because you want to come back, take some time away from each other, even a week or two, you know, then get back into the rehearsal room and see what ideas you have. You know, it's kind of, that's how this cycle actually works. Yeah. And um, we probably spent too much time touring, mm. but we loved it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Especially as a support band, you're only on half an hour. Right? <laughs> <laughs> True, actually. Then you get to sit open back the, and open the cans there, boys. You know? yeah. <laughs> I've always wondered back in the early days now, was there a thing of, I've heard stories from a few different bands is the main act would almost try to sabotage the support to make sure that they don't upstage them. Was that actually a thing that you encountered? Yeah. Yeah. Saw doctors wouldn't let us have a bass drum. Right. <laughs> so, the, so the drummer had to play with a snare. <laughs> Right. It didn't bother us anyway because this to us was all about the songs you know but you, you could you could imagine if that band had been a very drum-led band or that kind of thing they would have been scuppered but it didn't really bother us so but yeah they did that kind of thing i'm not quite sure what the band's level of knowledge about all that was but certainly um that was definitely a thing yeah yeah jeez sadly it's almost like saying to the guitar. But it was really, rare. I did, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I know, didn't mean to interrupt you there. Exactly. There. You can't use your amp, and you only have four strings, and but then you're a bass player, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but um, yeah, no, it wasn't. And it was pretty much only them. It was only confined to them. Now, it wouldn't speak bad of them. The lads are lovely, and the tour guys were lovely, but and it was just a management decision, obviously. But uh, we found it very strange. But it wasn't widespread, to answer your question. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good to hear. It's good to hear. And... I think it's fair to say that in the band, you took no crap when it came to members, people joining. Was it hard to find reliable people? No, no. Um, the problem was that when you're in a band, an original band, and you have that trust and growing up and faith with all the guys you're with, that you think they can't be replaced, or you think another musician won't be the same and all that. And, and to the contrary, you find when you get older that playing with other musicians make you better. And they bring something different to the table and that's what's beautiful about it, you know? And, yeah. um, you know, it's not a word that can be quantified with better or, or it's just different. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, no, we've, we, you've been very lucky with the musicians that we've played with over the years. You know, they've all been amazing. And, and uh, yeah, so no, that wasn't an issue really. Yeah. I see. I see. And then flash forward, you were supporting Bon Jovi. That must've been, a point i know you'd toured england and everything with saw doctors but bon jovi no now you... no bon jovi was first that happened first prime before anything else uh it, that was a, an fm 104 competition and our and our manager our manager at the time just put us into the competition and we wanted to support bon jovi in the rds but sure we loved it and and concerts that made us that has to be it because it's thirty six thousand people and uh, we yeah. just came out and just had the crack now we had been gigging 
we were very match fit when we did that gig. You know, we had been gigging in pubs and clubs and everything all up and down the country, all right. But um, that was the first major here we are on the map. And 104 had been playing us a lot up to that point, which is, again, another bone of contention. I don't think Irish Radio does that as much anymore as they used to. And is, is that down to that bands aren't providing radio-friendly enough material? According to whom and in what bracket? I don't know. But um, certainly... They were they were instrumental in breaking us, as were 96 in Cork. And um, so when we kind of did that gig, it was a self-affirmation for us and, and um, you know, support for them and the decision they'd made to back us too. So that uh, all worked out very well. Yeah, it must have been a point then where you thought, I know you'd won the competition, but you thought it's really starting to pay off. Now, this is it, we're made. Oh, yeah, I thought it was home. I was walking on the stage. The drummer was almost thrown up and I was like, bring it on, man. This is where I'm going, you know. And uh, I, I remember saying after the first song, we had them all sing along with us after the first song. And I remember Paddy at the time was just saying, I've never seen that before. I've never seen a support band do that before. But we were like, what difference does it make for a support band? And I inevitably would say then after the first song, Haha, I bet you all thought we were going to be shit, didn't you? <laughs> and, and then you have them. They're on your side anyway, because you're just, it's just a bunch of humans in a field having some fun, isn't it? That's what yeah. it's all about, really. So, um yeah, it was a turning point, certainly, and uh, I really adored it. It was great just to be on the big stage and get the feeling of what it's like. You know, the only difference is, I'm sure it's a different feeling again when those 36,000 people are all there to see you. True, You know, true. So it's the next best thing. Really. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard many, many times that you're almost experts in crowd engagement and getting the, ba- or getting the crowd going. How did you work on that was it something that you had to that you were naturally good at or did you have to actively kind of well you have to do it no matter what size your audience are and if you spend years in pubs playing to 10 15 people and just having great fun with them you know as i said it's the exact same thing once you know that when you're talking to an audience you're talking to an individual so it doesn't matter how big or small that and the more the more you kind of go is everybody having a good time yeah i mean you can do that once or twice Mm. but after that it's not very engaging you know I mean, I, I mean, we came up with loads of original ideas. Um, you used to have those cameras, you know, those disposable cameras, and you'd wind them along and click them, and somebody had one of them in the front row. This is in Wembley Arena with 11,500 people who were supporting somebody, and I grabbed the camera and said, okay, and I held the camera up and said, right, can you that all kind of scrunch in a little bit? And You know, which is what your uncle would say at the wedding, but everybody yeah. loved it because it was just like, what are you talking you know before they had lights on phones and all that kind of thing so it was something that did come naturally i suppose to answer your question yeah and 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 it was crafted then through years of just gigging anyway yeah yeah and something else you guys used to do as well that you rarely if ever see at gigs nowadays is you'd go down to the merch booth and actually meet the fans we sold we sold a lot of records that way yeah i think you know we sold ten thousand albums in eight shows with the cars Jeez. <laughs> I, and here and for your listeners, here's here's a little bit of maths, right? So we had signed we had licensed our record to a, a label in the UK. So we had to buy the albums off them for six fifty. Right? The venue take twenty five percent out of your tenor. That right. leaves you seven fifty and you buy the records for for six fifty leaves you with a quid. <laughs> and then it costs you fifteen grand to do the tour, so you lose five grand. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to the music business. The B yeah. is very important in music business. You know, music is all great and all that, but if you don't have the business right, and mm. ultimately I think that's what we felt, felt of our business end wasn't very good. Yeah, yeah. 
Jeez. I've heard that that many, many times now from the musicians I chat that there's no money in the music business. No. Yeah. No. And again, as I, was, I alluded to earlier on, that's you know, that this organization is is on a mission to try and sort that because it's it's not right. Mm. You know, it's not right. Yeah, yeah. It's funny um that you should mention the music business and being screwed over by it really, because uh last night I watched the new Elvis film. And oh. he has to be like the definition of someone who was not on top of their business. No, you know? no. Uh, but, and, and at the same time, had a bit of a crook looking after him, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and that's kind of shows you how the music industry was born. Mm. You know, rather like the movie stars in the old days, they used to have this studio system where the studio owned the would just hire you for 500 quid a week and then you just make as many movies as they want you to make yeah yeah and employ you there you know that's and and, I, and and then when you follow that through time with george michael and prince putting slave on his face and changing his name and all that and you know because they made you sign a contract when you're 18 that you personally can't get out of for the rest yeah. of your life yeah there's no other industry in the world that would allow that to happen you can't sign somebody for the rest of their lives when they're 18 you know hmm. yeah like when you think about it, when you're 18, you don't know the way the world works. You know, you're blinded yeah. by, especially when it comes to music, you're blinded by like everything they tell you. you and don't that know was what part of their sales process. They knew that. Yeah. Hey, what about a new Cadillac? You sign us, we get your Cadillac <laughs> and you can, you know, be playing in front of girls. Yay, where do I sign? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. Uh, I'm sure it still goes on to this day, but it's... um. You know, it's very important to look after the business. The business is paramount. You have a product, being your music, and you have to learn how to sell. Or if you, or if you don't, at least hire somebody you trust that does, like yeah. Paul McGuinness. You know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Speaking of the business, when you guys signed to Warner, you must have thought, right, we are set. Like we don't have to worry about a thing. Yeah, they brought out Sunburst, had a massive hit with that, and then they brought out All the Time in the World and dropped us. <laughs> and to this day I can't get the albums back off them in Ireland Still they, own, they, they own the records and they won't give them back oh, man. and they, they didn't even make them we made them <laughs> you know so look as I'm saying looking back in it now that's why I say things like looking back and, and, and uh, you know there's a lot more to be thankful for than sad about mm. but in the interest of this podcast if there are younger people listening to it coming up you know there's a lot of things you gotta be wary of and you, you, you gotta keep your eye on you know mm. But record labels are notorious where anyway at the time for that kind of carry on, you know, which is uh, horrendous, really. And yeah. it's exploitative and it should it should be stopped, you know, um, which I think it is kind of more so now. I'm sure it is. I mean, the One Direction boys ended up making a good few quid and I don't think they wrote a note in their lives, you know. So yeah. that did very well. So they were obviously looked after and worked very hard and fair play to them as, as well they should be. Um, mm -hmm. But it's it's um, yeah, it's just we thought we were set when we signed to Warner's, but they, but there you go, you just never know. I suppose the only saving grace nowadays, though, is that much more people have the ability to do it themselves. You know, record in their bedroom and actually put it out on apps like Correct. Spotify. You know, correct. But they can't get revenue from the sales. That's the problem. Well, true. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So, and there's there's plans afoot for that too. There's there's things can be done about that. And mm. um, you know, there's a thing called a user centric model. Uh, people could look it up though. But and basically, what it would mean is that if you pay a ten pound fee to Spotify, they keep three quid as their platform fee, which is fine, keeps all their shareholders happy. But the other seven quid, if I just listen to your record for the whole month, then I get, then you get the seven quid, my seven quid. 
because the share of what I listened to was mostly you. So you get the larger share of my seven quid. Whereas at the moment, everybody's tenor goes into this huge pool and whatever your song's percentage play in that pool was, that's what you get paid out of. <laughs> Hence 0.0000001 cent because the pool yeah. is so huge. Whereas a much simpler model would be, as I said, band comes out, they, they build up 10,000 fans, they make an album, they put the album out on Spotify and their 10,000 fans pretty much listen to their album religiously for two or three weeks or a month or the lion's share that month. Mm. You know, they have enough money then, 30, 35 grand or whatever coming in to, or more, 70 grand or whatever the percentage is, to make a new record and to keep going and to survive, yeah. and, which ultimately should be the goal of all art, you know. Um, and, and it doesn't have that handout-outness and that the way that a lot of art has been perceived now is that we all live on handouts and grants and all because our industry is decimated, mm. really. So um, there's lots of things afoot to try and fix that. I, uh, I was reading a thing earlier on this morning, actually, that in the US, the Senate, I think it is, are really for trying to force through a thing that will totally change it. And I mm. think they're wanting to make it for every stream you get, like... 15 cent. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, but sure, why, is, you know, why do you need to legislate for that? Yeah. And again, it comes back to the business, you know, they... they yeah, you know, the artists and the business are very much on opposite sides here and have opposite agendas. Mm. Um, so it's just very, very important to keep an eye on that. Yeah. I'm not saying every story is a horror show. It's not, by any means. But there, there is a lot of it. Mm. And uh, um, so, yeah, look, uh, sign to warn us. Yeah, it was a great time. We enjoyed it when it, when it happened. I mean, Sunburst was huge. They sold the ad to Centra the next week. Um, so they made their money back in a week. <laughs> um but uh yeah i mean you know the radio play was great i mean it did it did a lot for profile but not for the pocket yeah yeah i get you i get you and the way you said you know they still won't give it back to you is there nothing within the rights where it reverts back to you in a couple of years and a second that's publishing 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 does that but not records now ah right so there's um so they own them well, they could just give them back if well, they're yeah. so inclined to do so because it's not worth anything to them anyway, but mm. they won't. So what I'm saying is, I suppose, just to be careful that sometimes when you sign something when you're very young, it should never be the case. I mean, even a mortgage doesn't do that. You can always sell the house and walk away or, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, no, it's, so it's, it's very important to be careful of anything that you sign. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. We'll, uh, we'll go back to your gigs at a, at, at a certain time, you were touring Europe and you were playing with the likes of Alice Cooper. And again, Meat Loaf, you finally got to to stand up on stage and sing one of his songs. What was that time like for the band? That was a magical, magical time. They were lovely. They were so lovely. His family and all, all of his friends. And they spoiled us rotten and they fed us every day and catering. And it was great. It's great. I mean, if I had a choice, if I could make a living going doing that five or six months a year, I'd still be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just jump on the turbos so. and go it's just <laughs> magical seeing different places and you know hanging out with a lovely team of people on the road it can't be beaten yeah. it's an amazing amazing experience it really is yeah. 
Yeah, I'm a I'm a massive Meatloaf fan myself. I've always wondered what he was actually like because you know there's so many stories you hear about him, and he seems like this incredibly intense person. I never yeah. knew whether to make up my mind of whether he'd be really nice or he'd be kind of a bit a sweetheart, sweetheart, very very self conscious person, very um, you know shy in many ways and introverted not as a persona but as a person the man i met was a very very kind engaging quiet man you know yeah. as a, yeah and you know his family adored him and his friends adored him he was a lovely man he just was and uh, you know i'm sure there's a there's a percentage of everybody who's part this and part that but the meatloaf act as you see it is is you know and again, I'm, I'm not using it's an act in any disparatory way, but, it, you know, it's a persona that he was playing. As a person, he was just a very, very quiet, kind man. Mm. That's my yeah. memory of him. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's... that's uh, As I remember, to... I remember when he first came off the stage one night, and one of the first gigs, and I was at the side stage, and I was singing everything, you know, and he came off, and I was like, hey, mate, I just, I loved that, man. I loved the gig. It was great. And I'm singing along. And she goes, that's great, kid. I need you singing along. I want you singing along. Sing along more. I need all the help I can get, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, very kind. Nice yeah. man. Yeah. And uh, then I mentioned you were playing with Alice Cooper. What was that experience like? Well, Alice and me were big mates. I can't profess that I met Alice that much. I probably met him in the, in the corridor or something like that. And it, and it was more when Meat's tour hooked up with festivals that we we met up with Alice. So we weren't actually playing with him. So, you know, it would be harder to make a connection because we were just another band on the bill in the festival. Mm. Whereas with Meat, we were touring with him and his family and his crew for months on end. So it's easier to spark up relationships that way. But by all accounts, you know, Alice and... Uh, we we got very close to Meatloaf's daughter Amanda and um, and her sister Pearl. You know we had a great time with them, and they, they Uncle Alice to them. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So by all by all accounts, another sweetheart. But you know they they are you know Alice would be an artist and a musician, but damn good at the music end of it or the business end of it too. You know, yeah. like Alice yeah. Cooper was a product, and he knew how to sell it and market it, and you know, yeah, yeah, a massively is. successful person, massively yeah. successful. Yeah. He of course had a this Chip Gordon, isn't it? Handles his his business end of it, and he's like this right. business music business guru now. Yeah. So of course, yeah. uh, Alice made it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but again, you know, hard working, sweet people. Um, no bad memories of any any of that at all. I have very few bad memories, to be honest with you. Really? You know? yeah. yeah. Looking back at it now. Yeah, it's like everything, you know, as time goes on, you kind of forget the bad and remember the good. Yeah, isn't that nice? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, no, overall, a very pleasant experience, you know. Yeah, yeah. I know you mentioned earlier on that Bon Jovi was one that made you. But in your opinion, what would some of the other concerts that made you guys be? Well, we sold out two nights in the Olympia with no seats, fire hazard. You know, I forgot to put my best friend on the on the guest list, and he couldn't come because they said it's a fire hazard. I can't uh, anybody else in the building. And I said, oh, "Packed that was," <laughs> and uh, we had great fun, great fun at those gigs. They were brilliant. You know, and we had a couple of great gigs in Vicar Street too. I remember we did New Year's Eve once and New Year's Day. The New Year's Day gig was gas because everybody was in tatters. <laughs> you know, the audience, the band, everybody. We were just kind of coming out. Whose idea was this? You know. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, no, lots of great memories and gigs-wise, you know. And then after that, after Picture House and stuff like that, there's been 
you know, we did a we did a reunion or um, a reunion, but a uh, Shinebox is twenty one, so we did a gig in the concert hall, mm. and we had a choir and string quartet. Now I just loved it; it was amazing. The concert hall was an amazing venue, and everybody would ever Pete Glenister play with us. And all the band members were back, and everybody played bits and pieces. From everybody who'd been in the band over the years. It was just an absolutely poignant night for me. I loved it. It was yeah. great. Yeah, I suppose when you're actually getting to that stage where, you know, you mentioned the strings and everything, seeing your music played to, on that level or to that, you know, with the orchestra sort of stuff, that must be a pretty great feeling. It is. I, I have a solo record I did um, with Adam Creeman, who has produced Ever Goes My Girl and, and uh, Madness Adam's Gladness album. I did a solo album with him and he got the Czechoslovakian Symphony Orchestra to play on two of them, 85 oh. piece. Jeez. Unbelievable! I mean, you're dead right. It's that is a real moment in your life where you kind of think, "Wow, this yeah. is, that's that's grown up." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Jeez. yeah. Be, uh, that'd be hard to top, though. It's uh, definitely a a moment in your life where lots of things are hard to top. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good. That's a yeah. So you either go, "Oh, well, it's all over. It's all down from here," <laughs> or you find you find other things that that touch you in the same way that those particular things did. You know, but. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of the aspirations you have as a young musician. Oh, I want to get played on the radio. I want to um, hear my songs sung back to me. All of that kind of carry on happened to us fairly fairly early. Yeah, yeah. You know, so within I suppose two or three years. Now, having said that, the original members of the band, the three of us, we signed to London Records in nineteen ninety one, and we really didn't have Sunburst hit success till ninety eight. So we were seven years plugging along, yeah. which is a lot, you know. It is. And we all lived in the same house, so <laughs> <laughs> we never got away from each other, you know. Uh-oh. So, but uh, yeah, a lot of things happen fairly early, and that was the thing you're striving to top them, top them, top them. You know, yeah, but, uh, you know. yeah, yeah. Geez, that must have uh, been a recipe for disaster, though. Spending that much time together, you know, and living together was. as well. Yeah, of course yeah. it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it was easier for us because we were on the dole and. You know, we were paying our rent together in a house where when back then you could rent a house for 500 quid a month between the three of you. You know, it was mm. just a different time. Yeah. A different time. It's far hard to get that kind of, you know, well, not hard. It's impossible to do that now. But yeah, looking back, we probably shouldn't have spent as much time together as we did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, one for the international listeners now. I'm sure they're probably screaming at whatever device they're listening to on it. But I have to ask. I probably know the answer already, but I have to ask, being a band in Dublin at that time, coming up, getting successful, was there times when you were compared to U2 or were you sick of hearing about U2? <laughs> <laughs> no, you only get that from Dorman. Oh, gee, look at the amount of gear you have, lads. You two were in last week, had less gear than you. Or that kind of, you still have the music, you know, and that still goes on to this day. Even, even during the pandemic, it was very difficult for us to, even explain to the government what self-employed musicians do. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And she was, you not have another job to fall back on. No! Oh. Um, ah, yeah, no, you would get YouTube comparisons, but sure, why wouldn't you? You know, they, they, you know, a lot of them, they came through and had a lot of the same influences as musicians that we did at mm. the time. We weren't that, that far removed from them, really, you know? So, um, we weren't the same kind of band, so we didn't fall foul to that a lot. But uh, there was a lot of musicians that were kind of following in that wake, you know, 16s on the hats and mm. ding, 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 delayed guitars. And the minute you did that, you were screwed, you know. So, yeah. 
I, I, I do remember a lot of, you know, you had to be conscious to not like stand like you do. So you had to make <laughs> anything that, that sounds right to you too. Now we're not doing that. No, no. <laughs> move, move along, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so you got a bit of that, but it's all harmless banter, really. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't. I probably cared about it a lot more then than I do now, you know. <laughs> I was just going to say, I was just going to say, it was probably one of them things that would ruin your day when you hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could you imagine? What's the worst thing happened to you? Oh, somebody compared me to you, too. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even attempt to walk on stage with a pair of glasses or anything on. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Oh. So we've heard the best. I always ask this. What would you say has been some of the worst gig experiences you've had and how did you overcome them? I think for any, I think anybody musician will say just the same as, as me. I think the worst thing that can happen to you is gear failure. Mm. So if you yeah. come out and you're hey, you can even be two, three, four and your guitar doesn't work for whatever, in any reason, um, that's horror. You know, because it's so you can't just stop and can I get this fixed and or you break a string back in the days when you had to fix them yourself. Yeah. You know, and all of that kind of thing. So gear failure was a big thing, and you know, because it would that would shake you, then you're shook, and it changes the whole dynamic of the gig and everything. So I mean, honestly, that is pretty much the worst that happened. I didn't mind playing to nobody in venues. I, you know, we'd done that for years. That mm. wasn't a big issue. You can have more crack with four people sometimes than you can, and then you learn a lot from those gigs. Because she said, "Well, the way I spoke to those four people now, speak to twenty thousand next week, because oh. that's the same." In the same number yeah. I said to you earlier on. Yeah. You have to learn that lesson. It's just four individuals or 20,000 individuals. It's all yeah. the same thing, though. You know, and it's an important lesson to learn. That's, that's yeah. a good one, actually. You wouldn't think of it. You know? Yes, it's, it's true. Same yeah. audience is the same, regardless of the size of it. It's yeah. all made up of individuals, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. So um, that's kind of it. Yeah, I don't don't really have a, oh, one time I fell off the stage story. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I do, but it's not coming to mind. Um, yeah. You know, gear failure, that's the worst. Oh, PA dies or something terrible. Oh, Jesus. You know, that's why when you see big bands, they've lost their so many crew and cast around them, making sure that that doesn't happen because it's everybody's yeah. worst nightmare. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's actually, I've noticed this. The two I hear most is gear failure or no crowd. You know, a lot of bands actually, that really bothers. But I suppose that'd be kind of... Oh, it bothers you. No, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't say you. Nobody explains to nobody. <laughs> Yeah, but there's absolutely nobody there that wouldn't play at all. What's the point? Hmm. But if you're four or five people there, you know, we used to joke there's more people in the band than there is in the audience, you know. <laughs> uh, but you kind of, it's a paid rehearsal then, our unpaid rehearsal, but it's a rehearsal nonetheless. And you, as I said, there's things to be picked up and learned in every situation you're in. Yeah. Would I, have, would I have known that's what was happening at the time? Probably not. I'd have been like, no, what do you This is a funny shit. And looking back, I was going, oh, yeah, learned a lot from that. So. And. Would you guys have preferred playing the big massive stages or the small or intimate gigs? I think there's there's merit in both. I think there's, you know, there are different kinds of gigs, like playing to four people or playing to 20,000 and, and everywhere in the middle. Mm. So, there, I mean, I don't know, as a songwriter, you could end up at a house party and you're sitting on a couch and somebody says, oh, you play that lovely song and you're, and you're playing it and there's 10 people at the house party all totally silent and paying attention to everything that you're doing. And you're being scrutinized because you're two foot away from them. Um, is a different experience to walking out in front of 30,000 people and knowing how to entertain them, too. So there is that and stuff to be learned from both. Um, like you wouldn't sit on the couch and go, Come on, everybody, sing along now. 
<laughs> right? You might just say, hey, join in on this bit, guys, you know. That. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so somewhere in the middle, you can speak to everybody in that in that in that way you know so that's that's how i'd look at that uh-huh. uh, would you believe you're actually the first one now who's who has said both normally i hear even bands that have played massive arenas i hear that they prefer the small more intimate gigs where you're right up in people's faces yeah well yeah i get that and uh, like that and that's what i mean about the house party s- mm. scenario i do get that it's a different animal and it's beautiful and it's great um I think with, with a bigger audience, you just need a string of hits, you know. Yeah. And that's how you end up playing those places anyway, because, you know, it's, it's just a gate. But, you know, there's that constant chatter and that can put some people off, um, you know. But I, I, you know, I would say both. It's a good way to look at it, all right. And uh, so when the band, when the music scene kind of started to change, you know, the festivals were changing and everything you know like they were going from rock music more towards dance and stuff like that and the gigs started to dry up how did you guys approach that how did you handle it we fell apart miserably (laughs) (laughs) whatever happened to picture house you guys were great did you buy any the records no and did you come to any of the gigs no that's what happened to Big House. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. There you go. Ran out of money. Um, yeah, and you're right. That's what happened. And we were victims of Britpop as well. The culture mm-hmm. was changing a lot of the time. So I think as a band, we might have just been a bit late to that party. Mm-hmm. Uh, we caught the end of it, really. I think if we had had Carmarana in 92, things mm-hmm. might have been a lot different. You know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was uh I was just going to say was would there be a time that you think if you had it done differently, you know, you were out in a different time period, it would have been a lot different. Yeah, but, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. We we kind of caught the start of the demise of the business as we knew it. Mm. That's what happened there. Um because I mean we'd so many hits on the radio and all all, all those kind of things. But you know, when you look back, it's definitely a shift in the tide as well. Like you say, you know, they were going more to I mean witness prime example the first time we played what was witness before it was witness it was something oh. else anyway we played the original one you know it was like failure mm. and then the next year we kind of we played that as well a bit less up the bill and then you know dj shack mac whatever <laughs> and then the third year it was a totally dance festival yeah the bands yeah. were gone you know it's mad really mad and yeah. i'm always saying on the podcast there needs to be i know there is kind of you know rock gigs now and guitar music gigs now but ireland really needs like a proper rock festival i think where there's just nothing but rock bands you know because i think there is a good crowd out there i know the i'm majority. trying to come back i think there's been a resurgence i mean even the uh the 80s um festival what's the one they do out there in johnstown really oh, successful the forever now is it forever now yeah and uh, you know, so there's an appetite. I think that's starting to come back. You know, I was listening to a podcast with Rick Rick Astley. He seems like a gas man, but right? do you see him playing with the Foo Fighters and all? Did you yeah. see that? Yeah. Um, and he was just saying, you know, he's like he's back playing in America, touring. Like, wow, you know, yeah. there's been a resurgence there. So, and I've noticed here, you see a lot of the festivals now in Ireland are, you know, stunning four of us, everybody but us, basically. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, so there seems to be a resurgence in. In that, in those kind of festivals too, mm. which is good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
definitely. And um, looking back on your career, is there anything that you'd love that if you could, you'd relive? You know, one point or one thing that happened. Is there anything you constantly kind of go back to? Funny you should say that because I would I would say the uh, I would say the the National Concert Hall gig, which really? is a nice thing to be able to say because it was only two years ago. Mm. Um, but I enjoyed that so so much I couldn't tell you because I wasn't thinking about anything else. But aren't these songs great? <laughs> and to me, I was as removed from them at that point as the audience was. So we all kind of relived them together. Yeah. You know, I wasn't telling going, oh, yes, I wrote this. And at the time, I, I can't even remember, right? Well, who knows? They're just great songs and, and, and don't they sound great, you know? So I, I have to say, and I think that's a very positive thing to be able to say, really, from in the business as long as I am. That, yeah. That, yeah, I think that, that gig in the concert hall was a major, major pinnacle for me. And, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd happily go and relive that night again. <laughs> I wouldn't blame you. I wouldn't blame <laughs> you. It's a, a pretty special moment now. But, um, at this point in your career, you know, you've achieved so much. You've seen the highs, you've seen the lows. At this point, what do you dream about? What do you want to achieve? Uh, I think recognition as a songwriter. I, I mean, I've I've a great songwriting partner, Jan O'Brien, and we, we can write songs in every genre and anything from West End shows to pop hits, you know, that kind of thing. And I think like an Ivan Arvello would be lovely. Mm. have some song that touched everybody. And somebody say, did you write that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, there. I think that's brilliant. So I, I, I think that's what it's at now. Rather than from a gig and or playing point of view, I think the songwriting would be, to be recognized for that would be great. Yeah, yeah, actually. Really would, really would. Yeah. You wouldn't go back to, uh, you know, trying to reform the band and try try go back to the glory days, so. Are you mad? <laughs> now, we're doing our last ever show on the 22nd of September. I was go- I was keeping it for the end to say, but that's <laughs> yeah. not the last ever one, is it? It is, yeah. It'll be the last one, yeah. Are you sure yeah. now it's not going to be like five years' time? This is the last one. You know all them bands that keep doing like... You can't, you can't. You're too, we're too old for five years' time. What are you talking about? Five will, years' time, we'll all, be in, we'll all be in wheelchairs. Look at the um, Rolling Stones. They're in their late 70s. So I they know they it. are, yeah. Fair play to them, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, another guy died. Get him off the stage. Um but uh, no, no, um, uh, people are too busy. They've too, they're, you know, the lives are, you know, even trying to get everybody together for rehearsal is a nightmare. Mm. So, it's, you know, I'd rather just put it to bed on a hide and to go through the stress of doing another show again. You know, it's just stressful when they're one-offs. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're one-off you. shows and you have to rehearse for them and, you know, you're not really match fit and it's a lot more stress. It's stressful. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine. I could imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and right, you're putting Picture House to bed. So, what are your future plans? Um, I'm just. I have a successful wedding band business now. I concentrate a lot on that. I enjoy playing. Um, sold out every night. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and 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 uh, you know, you can make a living doing it. And I, I'm just concentrating on that. I am starting to write some new stuff now, but. Uh, you know, it, I don't think it holds the same kind of um, enchantment like as it used to. So, um, just kind of a what's the, there is an element of what's the point. You know, what is what is the point? And and kill Aaron. That's the other thing I have to say. I really want to change the future in this country for people coming up behind me. I, I want to leave it better than I found it. And there are issues in Ireland. I mean, we don't have a representative body for the music industry in Ireland, like the film, like the film board. You know. The yeah. film board is a statutory 
um, organization that concentrates around tax breaks and getting investment in for filmmaking, you know, on a proper scale. We don't have that for music here. That's crazy. You'd, you'd assume we would, like. You know, you'd assume that we would, like, hey, we punch way above our weight, like our, like our whiskey industry or like our tourism, the IDA would give, you know, people money to come set up businesses here. And yet we don't seem to have any coherent organization to export our music to the world. And it's such a massive part of our culture. I know. I know. So that's what I'm working on now. And that'll be, the you know, if I do have a legacy to leave, hopefully it will be that. But it's very hard. It's like everything else in Ireland. It's very hard to kind of, you know, get the right people on board at the right time and, and figure out that Rubik's Cube. You yeah, know, yeah. As one move leads to another, and all of that kind of thing. But you know, it's not something that has a finite, finite timeline for me. I'm just going to keep going till uh, something happens with it. You know, but I think it's a very important thing that we we should have a functioning music industry in Ireland, and we don't. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But imagine it's the type of thing you know. Once one guy is kind of working on it, trying to change it, surely every other musician in the industry would be like, yeah, I I want to help with that. And they'd jump on board. Yeah. Yeah. Very well made do, but you have to get it to a point in which people go, oh, okay, I can see what this is now. Uh, so we're at the block building stage, you know, which you. is fine, which is fine. But, um, you know, um, we haven't gotten any door slammed in our face, really. And anybody that does just doesn't have the time really to help it out. But it's, uh, you know, everybody agrees. So it's just a question of, as we say, getting the blocks, get the foundation right, and then we can build upon that. So that's where I'm at at the moment. Ah, brilliant. Well, I look forward to seeing what you do with it. And we'll get on to the last couple of questions then. I always okay. ask these, so you can't get off the podcast till you answer, I'm afraid. Okay. If, uh, if you could see any performer or artist from history concert for one night only, who would it be? Now you know I've answered this. I've answered this question myself countless times. You ever asked that question? Ever? Remember it now? <laughs> no. Um. I suppose it would be Glenn Campbell. Right. Glenn. Right. Glenn did an amazing gig with the National with the BBC Symphony Orchestra back in the seventies, and I just thought it was the most fantastic thing I'd ever seen. Ah. You know, Glenn Campbell. Yeah. Good one. Good one. Not one I've. Not one I've had before. Oh, amazing guitar player, amazing singer. The songs are incredible. You just be there all night, like, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I would say the CEO, you know, obviously Paul, but but I've seen him twice, so that I've that memory has come has happened. And uh, you know, if I, if the chances are I go and see him again when he's back on the next tour. But but if there was anybody out of history, and it doesn't matter that he happens to be dead, but uh, but definitely, yeah, Glenn, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, be definitely, yeah. Uh... Definitely a good one to see anyway. And if you could spend 24 hours locked inside a room with any performer or artist from history, who would it be? Now, does it have to be music? Uh, usually, but I'll make an exception. Oh, uh, Marlon Brando. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I'd say you'd have such crack with Brando because his friends that knew him, he, he, like, he'd ring you up, he, he, he affectionately called himself Brand Flakes, you know. Hey, it's Brand Flakes. What are you up to? You know, he was meant to be just hilarious crack. If you if, yeah. if you knew him and got on with him, you know, uh, yeah. And from a music perspective, um, you see, you'd be kind of going through your mind and thinking, oh, Jesus, what have I met him now? And he turned out to be an arsehole, you know, be ruined. Mm. <laughs> um, and then 
somebody that would have to be engaging enough to kind of hang out with. I'd say Elton would be great crack to be locked in a room with for 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, actually. You know, Definitely. once he knew he was getting out and he didn't have to throw a tantrum, I think he'd be grand. <laughs> yeah. But I think Elton would have some, you know, would have some amazing stories and yeah. tales to tell you. You know, Tom Jones being alone. Tom, yeah. I was lucky enough to have four or five hours on a couch with Tom one night. Uh, met really? a mutual friend, yeah. And because we'd met a mutual friend, he knew I was all right. And so... We yeah. just chatted like he just—he's just Tom from Wales, honest to God, and he t- and he talks to you like that. You wouldn't believe what happened to me when I went to Vegas first. You know what I mean? Like, and he's telling you this. He said, "Can you believe it? Can you believe that happened to me?" And I was like, oh, Tom. He's like, "Who has these memories?" You know? Oh, jeez. Um, yeah. So yeah, Elton, uh, Elton Jones, Elton Jones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I suppose I uh, at this point I should ask. I mentioned it. The beginning, but how did it come about that he bought a box of your CDs? I I don't know. I think he heard us, or he was at one of the shows, and uh, he had heard a song played on the radio, and he was infamous. You know, infamous. He was famous for doing that anyway, mm. and he really liked the music. Now he probably sent somebody from his office down there, buy me ten of them, and then he sent it out to you know, which is an amazing thing for somebody to do, really. Yeah. But I genuinely feel he does that because he just liked the music. It's a great to hear these songs; they're great. Yeah, as opposed to help these guys out or do something for them, or you know. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose I suppose he gets Spotify playlists now and just emails them to his pals. That's what he would do now. Probably, actually, yeah, yeah. much simpler yeah. and less money for the for the other <laughs> band. There you go. There you go. And the conversation goes round in circles. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And if there was a song that could appear on the soundtrack to your life, what would it be? Well. Here, There and Everywhere was my favourite song for years. I thought it was the most perfectly written pop song I'd ever heard. And then, like, to be songs like, um, well, classical piece of music called Caviolera Rusticana. Uh, it's made famous for the last scene of The Godfather 3. Ah. But it's absolutely stunning piece of music. So, yeah, that would definitely be, that would be number one at the moment. Ah, good choice. I actually, I don't think I've had a classical piece mentioned for that answer yet so it's yeah. uh i'll have to of course i've seen the god patter the god god patter god father <laughs> part uh part three but that music doesn't stick out to me i'll have to it's go the scene at the end up. yeah when he's on the steps yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and when he's when, when he's in the chair right at the end it's that that, oh, it's that yeah. music yeah. yeah 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 and the final question is there something i should have asked you <laughs> that's a great question no no there isn't but I do love that as a last question that's great where, where did I make a mess of this <laughs> yeah no no uh, no no nothing is all left out it kind of covers it all really brilliant yeah I love drawing yeah. that one in because it really catches that's people a great off guard one. that's a really good one bro yeah that's a good one I like that yeah. right well Dave yeah. it's uh, it's definitely been an experience it's been one I've I've actually had picture house in my head since i started the podcast and i'm delighted i finally got uh, to, got to do it well thanks for thinking of us brian I, I appreciate it it's been very nice talking to you
prediction is you like podcasts if that's true then make your way over to the cognitive discourse where we have monologues short stories and open discussions and every now and then i get a little ranty if this sounds like something you're interested in then go check us out we're streaming on all major platforms and hell we're even on youtube new episodes out every friday i hope to see you there Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify. And if you're interested in signing up the Band Builder Academy, use the link in the show notes below and enter the code CONCERTS and you'll receive 10% off. So, until next time, keep rocking. Hey! Hey, what are you guys still doing here? The show's over. It's over. You can go home. Go on. We'll see you next time. We'll be here. <laughs>